Andy and Gordy, and well, since neither Andy or uh, uh, Ryan were talking about it, I said, Gordy, that gave me this opportunity, and uh, we'll work as much of uh, Isaiah in here as we can. Um, so Isaiah 40 begins, comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Now, the background to that is Isaiah 39. In Isaiah 39, God had predicted that they would be taken into Babylonian captivity. That is not a very encouraging message. Uh, it's a message of disaster, but as soon as he tells them that, he says, but comfort my people. And he gives a message of comfort and hope that is really the keynote for the rest of the book of Isaiah. This is chapter and verse divisions are put in by man, but this is cool. Do you know how many chapters there are in Isaiah up to chapter 40? That would be 39. Do you know how many chapters there are in Isaiah from 40 on? That would be 27. The same number of books we have in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this section from 40 on is very messianic and very comforting as we look forward to the hope after the punishment, after the captivity. So, he says, comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Well, how is he going to comfort them? Well, with a number of statements here, look at verse 2. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That's comforting news, for warfare is over. Now, God had been at war with her because of her sins and her unfaithfulness to God that he declares a truce. The war is over. This is a typical thing you see in Isaiah. Suddenly, God's grace appears, and you don't exactly know why. For example, in Isaiah 12 and verse 1, he says, Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. That is awesome. But you really don't know why. Isn't that cool? wonder why God turned his anger away. wonder how he was able to do that. Or in Isaiah 5, he talked about a vineyard that was just producing terrible grapes. And God was going to destroy that vineyard. And then all of a sudden, on Isaiah 27, he describes the vineyard. And God taking <laughs> wonderful care of it again. And he says in Isaiah 27, 4, I have the wrath. Well, he had had wrath. Where did it go? I think the best explanation for why the warfare is over, the best explanation for why God's wrath is turned away, is really Isaiah 53. It's the fact that God provided the atonement for our sins in Jesus. That's why he can declare, looking toward the sacrifice of, sacrifice of Jesus, I'm declaring a ceasefire. No more war against you. That's great news. Then look at verse 3. Oh, we're back to Isaiah 40. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. You know what that means? It means God's coming. you got to prepare the road for him it's because he's, he's about to come. He's about to be there. Now, in Ezekiel, you see how God was going to lead his people because of their wickedness and idolatry. But Isaiah is saying, but he's coming back. And you guys have got to get the road ready. He says, let every valley be filled up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. 
and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So he's saying that God is returning. Now this is, I think, a reference to John the Baptist's work in getting people spiritually repentant and spiritually prepared for Jesus to come. They need to remove all the barriers that could be a hindrance to the Lord coming. But he's going to come, and he's going to reveal his glory. And since the mouth of the Lord spoke it, you can put it in the bank. He's not going to renege on what he said. He is coming. So, the comforting message is, the warfare has ended. God's declaring the truth. And he's coming. He's coming back. He's coming to be with his people and reveal his glory. Look at verse 6. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. When God speaks, it's not like man and man's glory. It doesn't last any time. What man says, he's not even around to fulfill for long. But what God says will endure forever. You can always count on and trust. God's word is as steadfast and reliable as God is. So everything he says is absolutely genuine and you can count on it. And then... He says in verse 9, Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. We've got great news. Declare it everywhere. Declare it boldly. Here's your God. Look at how he's coming. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead the nursing ewes. The Lord is going to come with his arm. Did you notice his arm in verse 10 and his arm in verse 11? God's got an arm that has the strength of a great warrior. You really don't want to mess around with the arm of God. You know, he is well able to knock anybody's block off he chooses. But he's also coming in verse 11 with his arm to tenderly gather his sheep. His arm can protect us, his arm can comfort us if we are with him and on his side. So the Lord is coming to shepherd his people. So the message of great comfort that Isaiah is is proclaiming the warfare is over, the Lord's coming, the word the Lord can be trusted, and when He's coming, He's coming to shepherd you like His sheep. So that's the comforting message. But then He just stops. All of this message relates to the Lord. So He stops and He looks at the Lord Himself. The more we understand the Lord the more amazing these messages of comfort are. Look at how great God is. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand 
and marked off the heavens by the span, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. Now, you understand what he's saying there. God is so much greater than the created world, and he's so immense that he deals with the whole universe like we deal with just little bitty objects. He was able to pour the oceans into his cup hand and to measure out about the right amount of water for each one of them, put them where they belong. He was able to use the span and mark off the heavens. That's how huge he was. He, he uses the measurements we use for little tiny things, and he, he's so immense, he uses them to create the entire universe. He says, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or has his counselor, who has informed him? With whom did he consult, who gave him understanding, and who taught him the path of justice? Taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding. You know, that... Uh, Universe creating project was a pretty uh, significant uh, project. Who were who the consultants? You know, what engineering firm uh, did he did he talk to and did he work out the blueprints with and did he do the physics analysis and all? He didn't consult with anybody. He knew all that stuff. He just did it. God is so much greater than the created world. Look at verse fifteen. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scale. He only lifts up the islands like fine dust. Just think about it. You ever gone to the deli and bought some meat or cheese or something like that? You know, I don't know. I, I don't do that very often. Uh, I did it more in Brazil. I'm thinking of grams, but I guess you can go buy a you know, half a pound of sliced turkey or something that way. Now, have you ever really examined that that thing they weigh it on and seen there was a piece of dust? Did you demand they get the piece of dust off of it so that they don't cheat you out of a dust piece uh, weight of, of meat? Well, it really wouldn't matter much, would it? He says that, that God sees the nation as a speck of dust. You know, we don't see the nations quite like that, do we? I don't think we ever see North Korea like that at the moment. It's not one of the bigger nations. What about the big ones? Oh, my God. They're just a bag of dust. It's like you took a big bucket of water and got one drop out. Would you ever know? Could you tell the difference? He says, even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They're regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. He's saying, well, even the largest religious endeavors would not be enough. You could take all of Lebanon, noted for its cedars, and use it and burn it to sacrifice all the animals of its hills. And still, it wouldn't be a sacrifice adequate for God. You know, you think about little Israel before the great nations. They felt like they were pretty insignificant. Before the Lord, those nations were pretty insignificant. 
The Lord is greater than the idols. Look at verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? Who will you compare to God? That's what, that's what we're asking in the song. As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol will not tire. Now, this is satire on idol manufacturing. <laughs> but the satire is simply describing accurately what they did. You know, I mean, think about most idols would have been made initially of wood and then plated with some kind of precious metal. Well, if you're going to make a good one, you probably ought to select a type of wood that's sort of durable, that doesn't rot too quick. Because wouldn't that be a shame if your God just rotted on you in the, just over a few years? And you don't want something unpleasant to happen to your God. And then, you make sure you get a good craftsman who gets, like, the base of it really planed off, right, good? Because you really don't want your God to topple over. You know, the ideal God doesn't move. You know, if it kind of wobbles, it's really not as good a God as what you like. That's, that's God's competition. <laughs> And, and you tell me that the things we put as a higher priority on God and we serve as idols today are any more relevant than this piece of wood they bowed down. There is nothing, period, that you can compare to God. And then look at 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? <laughs> it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, <laughs> who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to grow in. It is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely have their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither. The storm carries them away like stuff. The, the greatest rulers of our world are like tumbleweeds with a little puff of breath from the Lord. You know, I don't know that all of our rulers understand that. But they are absolutely as light as a feather in the sight of God. He will bring them down just like that any moment he chooses. Our God is so amazing. Who can you compare to God? And then 25. To whom then will you liken me that I would be as equal, says the Lord, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. So you look at God sort of supervising the stars as if they were kind of his army. And he sort of, you know, lights them up and tells them where to go and how to march and, you know, all that sort of thing. You ever thought much about the stars? I did a little work this afternoon on that. Let's see if I can find what I'm looking for here. Um, do you know how many stars there are? 
I remember what this said. Let me see if I find where it says it. Um, oh yeah, how many stars do you think there are in the uh, in the sky? Well, I, I looked up what seemed to be a pretty good source, Universe Today, and it has a pretty comprehensive article on that. There's uh, up to about 400 billion in the Milky Way universe, in the Milky Way galaxy. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? 400 billion in our galaxy, which they go on to explain that it's not one of the smallest, but it's not one of the biggest. It, it says there are spiral galaxies out there with more than a trillion stars. And giant elliptical galaxies with a hundred trillion stars. You know how many galaxies there are? This says, according to astronomers, there are probably more than 170 billion galaxies. Stretching out into regional space 13.8 billion light years away from us. You know a light year is, I believe, about 5.8 trillion miles. And this is 13.8 billion light years. And, uh, you know, he created the stars. And he leads them forth by number. He calls them all by name. <laughs> I don't know how he found names for that many stars, you know. But he's got them all, and they're all behaving the way he wants them to. And it's just like, it's just like his army. You know, kind of almost like pawns on the chessboard, where he just puts them where he wants and they do what he tells them to. We don't recognize what an incomparable God we serve. Just an amazing God. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice duly escapes the notice of my God? You ever say that? You ever think that? Oh, I just don't think God's got any attention. You know, God's had me go through this or that, and I, I just guess he kind of forgot about me, or maybe maybe he's not really uh, doing much these days. Huh. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. God never gets tired. And God will strengthen us. Now, he talks about youths grow weary and tired. I mean, why did he say youths? Well, because we typically don't think of youths as getting too weary or tired. You know, Caleb, how many miles do you run today? Five. And how many days in a row have you been running? No? Sixty? Yeah. And all of them at least three miles. And all of them probably average at least five. And has that just worn you completely out? You don't want to ever run again? No. I mean, when you're 17, you're going to run like that. <laughs> <laughs> but even Caleb, 
doesn't have that much strength and power compared to the world. We have the strength of God that he's willing to give us. To give us the power to overcome temptation, to keep going and serving God, we can do way more with the Lord's strength than what we think we can. We are so quick. It is, oh, poor me, things are so hard. I just don't know, understand why it's so difficult. I'm just so worn out with all these trials and difficulties. We ought to talk to the Apostle Paul sometimes. Read 2 11. And read this. And just think. Those who wait for the Lord will gain the strength. He gives us wings like eagles. We'll run and not get tired and walk and not become weary. When we are with the Lord and He's strengthening us, we can keep going. I don't care how hard it gets. The youth may stumble and fall and they may get tired. <laughs> Maybe we think, well, that's not, that takes a long time. It takes a lot. But God's got way more strength than that for us. So, God is in comfort. Now he goes on in chapter 41 and throws down the challenge to the idols. He says in verse 1, in the middle part, let them come forward, then let them speak. Let us come together for judgment. And we're just going to find out who's the real God. So he says, who has aroused, this is verse 2, one from the east, whom he calls in righteousness to his feet. He delivers up nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword, as the wind-driven shaft with his bow. He pursues them, passing on in safety by a way he's not been traversing with his feet. Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. So he talks about this great world conqueror that just mows down the nations, subdues the kings, and they're just like chaff before his boat. You know what he's talking about? He'll tell us a little later on in Isaiah. We won't get that far. But it's Cyrus. Cyrus is the world conqueror. Persia. Well, you remember a Persian king, Asmerus, Asmerus, and the Bible Xerxes, who ruled over the 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. That's how much Persia conquered. It was Cyrus that did the job. Wow. God says, who's the one behind that? Who called him? Who gave him his strength? Who conquered the nations before? It's me. Now, how do the nations deal with a Cyrus that God raises up? Well, verse 5. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They've drawn near and have come. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. So the craftsman encourages the smelter, and he who smooths metal with the hammer encourages him who beats the anvil, saying with the soldering, it is good, and he fastens it with nails so that it will not totter. That's what they do. The manufacturers of the idols all kind of pat each other in the back and say, you do a good job, come on, we can do this. And uh, they try to make a really good, strong set of gods so they can deal with the great conqueror the Lord has raised up. And when they get finished, if they nail that idol down real good, it'll stay right there because it really hurts morale when your God knows. <laughs> That's the best they can do. What are anybody, what is anybody going to do when God decides to raise Osiris up and send him to conquer the world? 
We can't deal with the power of God. Who is the real God? Will the real God please stand up? There's no, there's no comparison. Who can you compare to God? And then think about what that means for the people who belong to God. Look at verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I've taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you're my servant, I've chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I'm with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I'm your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He's saying to his people, look, I've chosen you. Don't be afraid, I'll strengthen you. Don't you worry about those nations. Don't you worry about your enemies. I chose you, you're my people. He says, behold, all those who are angry at you will be shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You will seek those who quarrel with you, but will not find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent. For I am the Lord your God. Who upholds your right hand, who says you do not fear, I will help you. It doesn't matter about the enemies. They'll be gone. They'll be scattered. The more aggressive they are, the more thoroughly God will destroy them. God says, I've got you by your right hand. Don't fear. I'm with you. When we serve a God like this, there is no enemy we have to fear. We know God's in control. He chose us. We're his friend. We're his servant. He's not rejected you. Don't worry. Just serve God and trust him to, to deal with the enemies. Look at verse 14. Do not fear you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Remember if I call you a worm? I remind you of Psalm 22. That's what Jesus felt like. Uh, what would you say is the primary distinctive characteristic of a worm anatomically. I have a word that I think really is the best word to describe a worm. Squishy. <laughs> right? Well, look at this. God's people are like a worm. And look at verse 15. Behold, I made you a new sharp threshing sledge with double edges. You will thresh the mountains and pulverize them and will make the hills like chaff. You will winnow them and the wind will carry them away and the storm will scatter them, but you will rejoice in the Lord and you will glory in the Holy One of Israel. Now, there's a couple of question marks I have in this passage. I'm not sure how to see this. I'm not sure if he's saying, I made for you this threshing sledge or I made you into this threshing sledge. And I'm not sure if the idea is they're going to pulverize the mountain that's thrown on top of them to try to crush them, or if it's the idea they're passing through a mountain and they're pulverizing their way through. But I'll tell it the way it looks to me like and that I prefer. Imagine that you've got the worm of God's people, and their enemies have decided they want to, they want to do in the worm. You know, how much force does it normally take to switch a worm? <laughs> well, the enemies want to make sure they get the job done, so they grab a mountain to throw on the worm. Would that get the job done? You know, that would be like incredible overkill. But I see God making the worm, his people the worm, into this glorified chocolate. 
that if the mountain's thrown on them, they just pulverize the mountain and scatter it to the wind. That's the idea. Now, maybe it's a different picture than that, but it's still that's the, that's the idea. God can deal with our weakness. Do you ever feel like a worm? Really squishy and not very strong? Well, God can deal with that. He can make you into a huge chopper that can overcome any pressure that's put on you. This is nothing about, wow, we are such great, awesome, amazing people. This is all about we serve such a great, awesome, amazing God that our own weakness is nothing because of what God does for us, because of how God strengthens us, because of what God turns us into. And so look at 17. The afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there is none. And their thirst, their, their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself. As the Lord God, as the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land fountains of water. I will put the cedar in the wilderness, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive tree. I will place the juniper in the desert, together with the box tree and the cypress, that they may see and recognize and consider and gain insight as well that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. Do you ever face difficult circumstances? He's describing them here in a desert with no water. That would be bad. <laughs> but God is the God who can deal with terribly adverse circumstances too. He can deal with our enemies. He can deal with our own personal weakness. And he can deal with these terrible circumstances. He just he just brings water all over the place. On the bare heights, in the valleys, in the wilderness, in the dry land, and puts all kinds of lush vegetation. The desert is abounding on all these trees and shrubs. Only God could do that. Think about Peter when he took his eyes off of Jesus and started looking at the waves. He started sinking. As long as you're looking at Jesus, he can walk on the water. When we're looking at Jesus, when we understand the greatness of our God, it doesn't matter about the enemy. It doesn't matter how weak and limited and, and, and lacking in ability we are. And it doesn't matter how bad the circumstances are. Do you see that this whole section is talking about the great power of our awesome, incomparable God and what that means for us? And so basically, he says in the next section that the nations have their gods of nothing. He says, guys, present your case. In fact, I love this. In verse, uh, verse 21, present your case, the Lord says. Bring forth your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what's going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know uh, their outcome. Or announce to us what is coming. Declare to us the things that are going to come afterwards, that we may know that you are gods. So the idea is God, he predicts the future. That's one of the things that uh, shows you that he's really a God that can do the job. I mean, really, when God predicts the future, he knows what you're going to do. <laughs> so he tells you what he's, what he's, what he's up to. Uh, well, he says, so God's, let's, let's have a predicting contest. You tell us what's going to happen. God's. God's. Well, he finally says, indeed, do good or evil, though we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Do something. I mean, okay, you can't predict the future. Just do anything. 
He can't do that either. There's nothing there. He said, behold, you have no account. You're working on to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. And then he goes back to Cyrus in verse 25 and tells what he's done with him. But then, the next thing he does in this is tell about a special person that he's going to send for us. He says in 42.1, Behold my servant who I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now did you notice who God chooses, who his soul delights in? A servant. You can connect that with all sorts of passages. God chooses the servant. And he again equips him with his spirit. So that he can bring forth justice to the nation. Now look at how it'll be. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor will he make his voice heard in the street. He's not voiceless. He's humble. He rejects sensationalism and self advertisement. You know why this servant doesn't have to cry out? The same reason that when you arm wrestle a two year old, you don't have to make sure you get to jump on it. You know, God, God doesn't have to cry out. Doesn't have to make a big splash. Doesn't have to do things in some kind of a theatrical way. A bruised reed, verse three, he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Think about the gentleness of Jesus. He will not be disheartened or crushed. Until he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. He shows no sign of the weakness that he sympathizes with in others. He will not go to pieces in adversity. He will not be deterred by pressure. He will establish justice. He will fulfill his mission. Thus says God the Lord, verse 5, who created the heavens and stretched them out who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. That's what Jesus has done for us. God was bringing his servant and giving him a mission to open our eyes, to bring us out of prison, and to bless us. Verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Who can you compare to God? We serve an incomparable God. He is immense and all-powerful. And he uses his strength to give us strength and power. He uses his strength to overcome every challenger. He uses his strength to defeat our enemies, to, to deal with our personal weakness, to overcome adverse circumstances in our lives. He uses his strength to bring them aside. Who blesses us, who opens our eyes and brings us out of prison because he is the we serve an amazing God. And everywhere you look in the Bible, you see Him. 
This is just one of uh, tons of passages that we need to Let's pray. You are incomparable. You are the only God. There is no competition. There is no one like you. There is no one close to you. And as Andy pointed out, that you've adopted us into your family. You've been willing to be our father. You love us. You've caused us to be born again to a living home, to an inheritance that's unfading, to a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Through your Son, you have blessed us so much. Father, may we praise you. May we rely on your strength. Father, we thank you that we need not fear, that we need not anxiously look around us, that we may not be overwhelmed by adversity or by enemies or by our own personal weakness. But that you are the God, the God of gods, the God like no other, who gives us strength, who protects us, and who will give us the victory eternal. Thank you so much. We praise your name. Help us to be more inspired by everything we know about you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.